Thank you, Claire. Uh, I pay her for that. Great conversation. So, uh, but thank you, Pastor Claire, and uh, great to be with you today on this gorgeous um, summer day. It's beautiful all across town this morning. It's a big race this morning, as you know, for an important thing, and um, it's just a delight to be a part of uh, Christ Community Family as a whole. So wonderful to look you in the eyes and say hi this morning. I'm just delighted to be here. My bride Liz is with me uh, today as well, so it's a special treat for my sweetheart me to, to be at the Brookside campus, uh, and as Claire said, to be talking about a subject that is really important. And if you're visiting or newer to Christ Community, you know this year we started what we call Open Here, and that is to encourage all of us to read God's Word every day, um, and we're going through the whole scriptures. Quite an ambitious task, don't you think? Uh, we started in January in Genesis, and we're going to uh, walk through all of the scripture, our entire church family, across the campuses, and we're going to finish in Revelation at the last Sunday of December. So it's a wonderful experience to walk through open here, uh, and I encourage you, if you've not uh, joined in, all you have to do is go to our website, you know, click your mouse, and uh, uh, what I love is I love getting emails every day, and I like listening to the scripture. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't, to stay with us on that. And we're in a section of the prophets. Wow. The Old Testament prophets, you know, they're called sometimes minor prophets, but they have a major message. And they're hard-hitting. Uh, they're designed to not make us very comfortable. So if you want a comfortable message today, uh, I hope it's an important message, but it's not a comfortable one. It's not a comfortable one for me, or it's not designed to be comfortable. So... Uh, I'd like to pray before I begin the message this morning and ask God to give us ears to hear, right? I mean, to hear a message um, and then to translate it to our own context, wherever we are in our spiritual life and journey, wherever God has us. So let's pray, and then we're going to open God's Word together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us your heart today. We thank you for your Word and how it speaks into every nook and cranny of our life, how we play, how we worship, our work, our contribution to the common good. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak into this text. Holy Spirit, have free reign to speak into every person's heart and mind today. We pray that you would break our hearts with the things that break your heart. And give us wisdom to know what our response should be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like you to imagine with me something that I love to do. And that is, uh, I love to go on the plaza, go to the Starbucks, sit out on the sort of the open patio, have my favorite Starbucks coffee, and read the newspaper. Uh, but imagine if you had that morning, it's a sun, sunny morning on the plaza, um, you're having your favorite cup of coffee, and you open the Kansas City Star. And as you're going through it, you know, you go to the sports page, of course, the Royals, you know, you have to check that out. But you open it, and all of a sudden in front of you is the obituary section. And imagine with me if you, all of a sudden, as you open the obituary, you're going to go through, you see your picture right there. And there's your obituary in the Kansas City Star. And you might be thinking, wow, this is a mistake. You might want to text your friends like, hey, you know, I'm not dead. But there's something about seeing your obituary that sort of is creepy. And it sort of gets you thinking about life, doesn't it? Well, obituaries are designed to be written about dead people after you die. But can obituaries speak to those who are almost dead? Is it ever possible to write an obituary for someone who has not died yet, but who is walking dead? Well, I want to suggest to you that in the 8th century BC, we have that very thing. In the Bible, we have an obituary 
written for a nation that is almost dead. And it is the prophet Amos in the 8th century B.C. Yes, Amos, written in the Bible, gives an obituary to a people, a, a young nation that is already dead. Now, this surprises us, doesn't it? This is not the normal literary genre of the Bible or genre. And yet, the text we're going to look at this morning is an obituary. It's an obituary to a nation that is suffocating, that is dead. It is almost dead. The smell of rigor mortis is setting in. In the nine chapters of Amos, you can get the whiff of death, and it's a putrid smell because death has a smell to it, and it's inescapable. Listen, I reminded that this spring, because under our porch, on the front step, under the stoop, as we walked out, there was this ambush of the senses. All of a sudden, this spring, we walked out our front door. Now, the front door of all places, that's where you greet people, right? What a wonderful hospitality moment. Pastor Tom and Liz come to our house and die when you walk to the front door. But we walked out, and there was this putrid smell. And we realized that under our stoop, some critter had died. And I have to tell you, it took us weeks to eliminate that smell because the smell of death lingers. Death, its smell, is inescapable. This is the picture that is painted for us, the primary metaphor of a writer in the 8th century B.C., an obituary not of someone who's already died, but of a people, a nation, who is suffocating in their own idolatry, injustice, and hypocrisy. And this is the text we're going to look at this morning. So if you haven't already opened up, I'd like you to turn to Amos, the book of Amos. And I want you to engage with me in this marvelous text. It is a difficult one. But I'd like us to set our historical bearings first. At Christ's community, we want to be thoughtful people who engage the text in its historical and cultural context. And what we're going to see is this. In Amos, one of the primary themes is that when justice dies, a nation dies. When justice dies, a cultural rigor mortis sets in. Now, we see this profoundly in this text that we're going to look at this morning, but let's set the context. The book of Amos has nine chapters. The first two chapters are really a polemic or a judgment genre for the nations surrounding Israel. All the way to chapter 2, verse 6. And then, all of a sudden, Amos spends the majority of his time talking to Israel, the northern kingdom of this time, of God's covenant people, all the way through chapter 9, verse 10. And as I alluded to you earlier, it is a hard-hitting message for hard-hearted times. At the very end of Amos, there is a whiff of hope, of restoration. But I want you to smell the putrid smell of rigor mortis setting in of a nation that is dying because justice has died. Now, I also want you to notice, as you read this text, and if you're in open here, you are hearing or reading this uh, uh, marvelous prophet. I want you also to notice that Amos gives us a literary marker to show the intensity of his words and the impending sense of an obituary. 
Three times this literary marker emerges in a sense of strong statements of God's impending judgment. So the tone is strong. The literary marker is in 3 1, 4 1, and 5 1. This is why the Hebrew text translated English has chapter breaks. It is hear this word, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word. And if you look right before chapter 5, you will notice a phrase. You ever had this phrase? Prepare to meet your maker. You heard that? That's exactly what Amos says to God's people right before chapter 5. He says, prepare to meet your maker. So this is a tough text, but it's an important one. Now in chapter 5, as we enter into this text, Amos has this hard-hitting message. He wants us to know that Israel is a dead nation walking, that rigor mortis has set in. The smell of death is blowing just above the surface of every verse. And the progression of chapter 5 follows a threefold progression. Amos first gives us a cry of lament in verses 1 through 9. Then he highlights a cruel injustice in verses 10 through 15. And then he describes the coming judgment in verses 16 through 23. So if you're following along in your mental scaffolding or you're writing notes this morning, the text follows this flow. There's a strong lament. There's a cruel injustice. And there's the coming judgment of God. So first, the cry of lament in verses 1 and 2. Now notice what Amos says. I think we have this text for you. It begins this way. Verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Now I want you to notice in these two verses that set the tone of this obituary. The the word lamentation and virgin. The word lamentation in the Hebrew text is only used in a handful of times in the whole Old Testament. Here in Ezekiel and Amos, it is an intense word. It is like seeing your obituary in the Kansas City Star on a Sunday morning. And it would stun the original readers. Death is here. It is a dire pronunciation. It is obituary for a young nation. Now, notice also the language of virgin. What Amos is saying is he's saying, Israel, you are dying before your time. You have died in the prime of your life. Now, when we attend a funeral, and we had a very tremendously sad funeral in the Christ Community family a few weeks ago, a 21-year-old boy died in an accident in Lawrence, Kansas, going to KU. This boy grew up at Christ Community, and we love his family, and the Leewood campus was packed to the rafters. And I was called to give the homily. Now, what is that like when a 21-year-old boy in the prime of life, his life is snuffed out? There is such intense grief, not only for the family and his friends, but we all ask the question, what a waste. In the prime of his life, there's so much that could have been. So many opportunities, so many dreams left unfulfilled, and we weep in a way that is beyond expression. This is what Amos says. Amos is bringing God's heart to bear on a nation that has died young because when justice dies, a nation dies, and cultural rigor mortis sets in. And God is grieving 
What happened to the nation of Israel in its youth to die? Now notice verse 7. We see why. In verse 7, Amos says, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. This language is unfamiliar in our cultural location, but let me unpack it just a moment because it's intense. Wormwood has this idea of corruption. Something that was designed to be sweet is now bitter and cast down is trampling, rejecting God's design and desire for his world. It's not an ignorance. It's a willful trampling on God's ways. And this is the picture God's covenant people had rejected God's design for the world. Now, justice and righteousness are woven together in a seamless fabric of judgment in chapter 5. Because justice and righteousness, dear friends, reflect the very character and nature of God. And when we as image bearers reflect a corrupted understanding of God's character, His design and desire for the world... We oppose God himself. We deface God to the world. And the way I think the prophet is saying in bringing it to our cultural context, most of us would not give a finger to God. Right? That'd be unthinkable. But what Amos is saying, he's saying, young nation, you have given the finger to God. By opposing justice and righteousness in God's design for his world, it's like you just said, you. What happens when we raise our fist as a people, as a culture, when we reject God's design and desire for his world, rigor mortis sets into a culture and destruction and injustice follow. See, justice and righteousness reveal God's character Injustice reveals our true character as sinners broken in need of grace. And what all of us need to understand in this text is that faith's vertical dimension to love God and our horizontal dimension to love our neighbor cannot be conveniently compartmentalized. The Lord Jesus reminds us of this, doesn't he? In the great commandment. The summary of the whole testament of honoring God is to love God, right? With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor is ourselves. There's no loving God vertically without loving his world horizontally. Is it any wonder that God's judgment, his sort of judgment, rests over the book of Amos for justice and righteousness at the very heart of God himself? A book I commend to you, I think it's one of the most thoughtful books in this area, is called The Good of Affluence, provocative title. It's written by John Schneider, And he brings such clarity to this idea of justice and righteousness of Amos. It's a little longer quote, and I think I have it up here, but I'd like to read it. Justice is the essence of God, and it must be in the essence of God's people, both his special people and all the peoples of the earth. Amos the prophet reminds us that righteousness is indeed closely connected with social justice. Righteousness and justice are not the same, but they are very closely related. Justice is righteousness expressed in the social order. Notice here, the economic life of Israel and the nations cannot be untangled from the eternal lives of people. What we need to grasp here, and John Schneider does so brilliantly, is that righteousness and justice reveal God's character. Faith's vertical and horizontal dimensions cannot be compartmentalized. 
We are called to a gospel faith, one that's integral. Now notice, Amos writes not only this lament of death, but he points out what is at the heart of God in this death, why this nation has died. And he points to, yes, evil, cruel injustice in verses 10 through 12. If your Bible open, follow along with me. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Gary Haugen is a friend of Christ's community, who has spoken at Christ's community, who founded the International Justice Mission, I think defines best injustice. And he says this, the sin of injustice is defined in the Bible as the abuse of power. This is what Amos is saying. Abusing power by taking away from others the good things God intended for them, namely their life, notice, their liberty, dignity, and the fruits of their labor. Now, I want you to notice something. In this text, twice, there is a structure in this section framed like a bookend around the language gate. You see it, the gate, twice, the gate. Now, what does this mean in Amos's context? The gate was a picture in the 8th century BC under King Jeroboam's reign, his monarchy, the structure, where economic transactions, political power, and justice, or judge, judge, uh, judges, sat. It's the picture of the halls of power of society that make these decisions of systemic righteousness or unrighteousness, or justice or injustice. It is the political, judicial, and economic heart of the nation. We still use this language of gate, don't we? Think about 2,800 years later in English, we have this idea of what? Gatekeeper. What's a gatekeeper? A gatekeeper is someone in a business or an institution or a government that opens doors. They have amazing access and influence. They are the hinge to power. And this is the picture of a ruling elite or the wealthy class in a monarchical time in 8th century B.C. that Amos is talking about. It's people who are gatekeepers, who make those systemic decisions of pronouncing justice and economic well-being and goodness to a broad nation. And rather than seeking justice, rather than seeking the common good that God had called them to do in Torah, in the Old Testament, as God's people, they are patting their pockets rather than serving the common good. Notice the text says they are suppressing the truth, cover-up, conspiracy. They are taking bribes. They are trampling on the most vulnerable. In other words, they're gaming the system, and they're gaining from it. It's an egregious abuse of power. That's what Amos is talking about. Now, they think they're pulling the wool over the society's eyes. But they're not pulling wool over God's eyes. And God has a word for a society of people who corrupt his design and desire for the world. And notice, if you look back in chapter 4, verse 1, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice Amos does something that's amazing. Here's what he says. He says, hear this word, you cows. 
of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring me that drink. Now, I don't recommend calling women cows. Just want you to know. And Amos may be a candidate in our cultural context for some sensitivity training, right, ladies? But if we go back to his cultural location, we understand what's going on. What is perpetuating this injustice? Primarily, economic injustice in a systemic way. It is is being driven by personal indulgence and greed. Now, if we walk back into the 8th century B.C., we understand more what's going on here. Remember, in chapter 1, we're introduced to Amos, who is a sheep herder in Tekoa, southern part of Israel. Bashan is in the northern part of Israel, and it gets a lot more rain. So here, you remember those old Western movies, y'all? There was range wars between the cattle drivers and the sheep herders. That's not new. That's the 8th century B.C. Remember, Amos is a sheep herder. The cows of Bashan, the northern part of Israel, was when it rained a lot in the summer, the northern section had rich grass where cattle grew. And they got pleasingly plump on a good summer. So here is a sheep herder from the south, <laughs> sarcastically painting the wealthy elite under Jeroboam II's monarchical system as those northern cattlemen, who are like fat cows, living indulgent lives, while the southern people are living like beggars. They are living indulgent lifestyles. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, they talk about living and sitting on ivory beds. Now, we have lots of examples in modern history of this abuse of power where those in power, the elite classes, the econ- people who are the gatekeepers of society are living high off the hog where everyone else is almost starving. I'll never forget the first time I visited Romania. In the early days of Christ's community, our first decade, we helped plant a church in Cordegio Argus, Romania, which is still going today, a flourishing church. And I remember some of us early on going to Romania right after Ceausescu, Nikolai and his wife Alina, yes, were executed and deposed. And I'll never forget leaving, flying across the pond, landing in Bucharest. Now, I had been behind the Iron Curtain earlier in 85, but I had never seen such a contrast. Bucharest is the capital, as you know, of Romania. And historians tell us, and I saw it firsthand only two years after Nikolai Ceausescu and Elena were executed by a mob, that Ceausescu as a dictator in the securitate and the apparatus and the elite of that culture had lived opulently beyond imagination while the rest of the country scratched out the meagerest living. And when you went to Bucharest, you saw it. I'll never forget going around the presidential palace. It was blocks by blocks. This is where Nikolai and Alina lived. And when you moved outside of Bucharest, just outside the palace, it was massive poverty and deprivation. He had plundered the country for his own pockets. This is the picture of the egregious economic injustice of Amos' time in the 8th century B.C. And you'll notice in this text, there is a strong coming judgment. If you have your Bible and you're following along, verse 16, Amos says there's going to be wailing in the streets. 
And then he brings up this idea of the day of the Lord. If you read the Bible or the Old Testament, you know that the day of the Lord is one of the themes. It's a picture of the future of history when God is going to make things right. When he's going to judge sin and he's going to bring righteousness to a nation. That's the day of the Lord. It's all the way through the Old Testament. So God's coming and people were thinking, ah, the day of the Lord is getting all those bad guys. And the twist of Amos is, ah, ah, the day of the Lord for you is going to be disaster. And notice the humor. Do you see humor in the Bible? I want you to notice, if you're following along, I hope you're staying with me. In verse 19, Amos in the 8th century BC, this is 2,800 years ago, interjects in this hard-hitting message humor. Do you see it? He says this, judgment is inescapable. <laughs> I love this. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. It's not going to be pretty for you. It's bad news. He says it's like this. You're going to first run into a lion. <laughs> and just as you escape the lion, you think, oh, I escaped the day of the Lord. I'm going to run into a bear. So you leave the lion. You're almost eaten by a lion. You're just freaking out. Then you run. You run out, and, and, and you escape the lion, and there's a bear. Let's just put it as a grizzly, okay? I mean, you don't want to mess with a grizzly. But somehow you escape the grizzly, and you rush to your house, and you go, put your hands back on the wall, and whack, a poisonous snake bite you, and you're dead in minutes. It's rather humorous, isn't it? And what he's saying is there's no escape from God's judgment. God hates injustice. And particularly, this text deals with economic injustice. Or the humanity, the common good he longs to flourish as they did in the garden. Amos' message is hard-hitting. But what does it mean for us? And you'll notice that he not only says there's injustice, as Claire read powerfully, there's religious hypocrisy. Do you notice that people are going to church every Sunday? (laughs) They're bringing their tithes, their offerings. They're singing great songs. And God says, your worship, this is literally what the text says, your worship stinks as bad as you are. Wow. Imagine a pastor standing up and saying, our worship stinks today. The smell of rigor mortis has set in. And their worship stinks to God. Because they are patting their pockets on the backs of the poor. And yet they're coming in on Sunday morning like they're the most righteous people around. See, all of us are broken. It's not a matter of those who have more and those who have less or classism. It's not what Amos is saying. All of us are broken and all of us are blind to injustice. And all of us need the new creation life that the gospel brings to us in Jesus Christ. Justice reveals who God is. It reveals our deep need. All of us are vulnerable and poor before God. And all of us need to come to the cross and find forgiveness in new creation life that Jesus Christ brings. And from that, inner transformation, when we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we begin to see the world as Jesus sees it. We care for the world as Jesus cares, and we have the power and transformation to live differently Sunday and Monday. The gospel changes how we see the world and how we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Notice 
Chapter 5, verse 24, God's heart just comes pouring down. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. How many have heard that verse before? Where have we heard it? In Martin Luther King Jr.'s great I Have a Dream speech. So Martin Luther understood that when justice dies, a nation dies. And he called our nation to address the egregious racism. And he drew from Amos chapter 5. And notice, it's not a slow trickle God wants. He wants an overflowing stream. And Jesus says, when we know him, rivers of water flow out from us. And that changes how we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What we care about, how we spend our resources, how we pray. See, as apprentices of Jesus, we dare not compartmentalize our faith. The gospel tells us that we have an integral faith where both loving God and loving our neighbors are inseparable and inextricably linked and vital. And the gospel tells me and you that what we profess on Sunday and how we live on Monday are to be one and the same. Here in Amos, we see that if we do not please God in our work, in the economic sphere of life, in promoting the well-being of the vulnerable, we cannot please him in worship. That's a powerful message for me and for you. So the question is, how do we promote justice in our time? What about us? And let me talk a little bit about that with a pastor's heart. A hardening message we need to hear, all of us, and I need to hear it this morning. Let me suggest there are some tensions we're going to wrestle with, no matter what our economic status is, what levels of vocational power and influence we have. We all wrestle with these tensions. And then I want to raise three questions, okay? If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to at least to raise the questions to think about later. First, tensions. There are tensions of lifestyle, of stewardship, and engagement. Here's the first tension. We all have a tension of what is celebratory delight and what is selfish indulgence. In a world where there's so much need, in a city where there's so much need, how do we know before God what is proper celebration that is a part of being a follower of Jesus in Scripture, and what is improper selfish indulgence? This is a tension we all face. Where does enjoyment of God's good gifts that he has given me end, and when does my sinful indulgence begin? There's no one-size-fits-all, but it's a tension. Everyone here, young, old, no matter if we're given an allowance as a teenager, we are a retiree, all of us need to wrestle with that on a regular basis. Secondly, is the tension of present giving and future investing. This is a tension we all wrestle with in stewardship. What is wise for me to give now as a generous person seeking to bring justice to our world? And what is wise for me to invest for the future? How much should I invest in a business or a retirement fund versus how much I give now? There's no simple answer. But that's a decision all of us need to wrestle with as families and as individuals. It's a regular tension we wrestle with. Third tension is the tension of the circle of concern and the circle of commitment. Circle of concern, circle of commitment. 
What I mean by this is that God's heart is to care for the injustice of the world, and we feel the weight the closer we are to Jesus of a badly broken world that needs transformation. We feel, we hear the cries of the vulnerable. And yes, it keeps us up at night. We need to capture God's heart for the vulnerable and the broken in our world, in our city. But the danger of that is when our circle of care, which is wide, becomes our circle of commitment. All of us have a limited amount of time, talent, and treasure for personal investment and involvement. So the tension is, where does our circle of concern end and our circle of commitment begin? One of the dangers is that when we discover and see more God's heart and the brokenness of our world, the broken is of our world can become a personal ought for us. There are many broken is's in the world. And the question we all have to wrestle is, when does that is become my ought of engagement? Now, there are three questions also. These tensions require soul-searching. And I want to suggest in our budgets, in our time, in our vocations, in our planning, we should feel these tensions before a holy God and rest in God's grace. And we should interact with others in a faith community. This is not an individual wrestling only between me and my Lord and the Holy Spirit, or maybe my spouse if I'm married or a close friend. It is part of a community of faith. It helps us wrestle with these tensions. It's one of the beauties of the local church and one of the beautiful beauties of the Brookside campus. But what are some questions of soul-searching? These are questions I asked myself this morning and I asked myself this week as a person that has been blessed with much privilege, education, and opportunity. Three questions I'd like to challenge us all with. Still with me? First one is this. Are we aware of the world around us? A wonderful book that I suggest for your reading is called Justice, Rights, and Wrong. It's written by former Yale professor Nicholas Wolderstorff. And Nicholas, again, has been here at Christ Community in the past. A remarkable thinker in this area, and he describes the vulnerable quartet of society that the church individually and collectively must keep a heart on to keep close to widows orphans resident aliens and the impoverished and this is what he says he says the prophets and the psalmist do not agree, do not argue the case that alleviating the plight of the lowly is required by justice they assume it then he goes on to talk about alleviating the plight of the lowly the vulnerable ones are we aware of those who are most vulnerable in our society are we seeing things from God's perspective? Where are our cultural and spiritual blind spots? Where is injustice going out under our noses systemically? Human trafficking? Educational inequities? The destruction of the unborn? Payday loans? I could go on and on. 
Many of us who have cultural privilege can become isolated and insulated from those who are most vulnerable. I was reminded of that as Liz and I were involved with an immigrant family from Iran recently, a precious family who fled to the United States through Turkey because of such intense persecution. You know, the Christians around the world are persecuted, killed, raped, and destroyed more than any other time in human history. It's the most untold story of the media today is how Christians are being killed and raped and abused around the world because of their faith. This precious young family got through Turkey and then the United States. And as we got to know them, you realize the challenge of being an immigrant. Educational challenges, the economic challenges, the health challenges, and the need for economic and systemic immigration reform was not just an abstraction, it was a person that we've been involved in. You heard this remarkable report from our mayor's blog about education. One of the things that stood out to me as I read his blog is that prison cells are built based on predictions rooted in the third grade reading proficiency. That ought to make us weep. This cannot continue. We've got to figure out how we can see this change. Andy Crouch, who was here for our Common Good 2013 conference, was devoted to bringing more justice and goodness and flourishing in our city, said this, one of the best indicators of the common good is when the most vulnerable in a community are flourishing. Are we aware of the economic those who are vulnerable? Are we encouraging economic systems and economic opportunities? Are we encouraging individual hard work and incentive? It needs to be a comprehensive approach. approach. So do we care? Are we aware and do we care? Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, an organization devoted to poverty around the world, said this. I love this. And this may be the application of the morning for you. He said, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. And perhaps this morning as you pray this prayer this week, there's one or two things that God grabs you and says, I want you involved in this. Last, are we engaged? Are we serving the common good? We do this in three ways. First, in our intercession. Injustice deals, the way we deal with injustice is first to get on our knees rather than protest. Injustice leads us to intercession. And families, if you're families, if you have roommates, kids with your parents, when you pray at night, what do you pray for? Are you praying for injustice in the world? Are you praying for our city? our nation. The second way we're engaged is in our vocation. Wherever God has placed you in the workplace, whether that work is paid or not paid, is the primary place God has called you to make a difference and bring justice to the world. And through loving our neighbors, through our good work, in and through seeking justice and goodness in the workplaces we inhabit, and promoting economic opportunities for others and creating economic value for others, this is a primary way God has called us to do justice in our world. It's where we spend the most of our time. And lastly, in our collaboration. As a church family, we are called to link arms with others for the common good, to promote human flourishing. And we're deeply committed as a church to do that. So let me just challenge us in closing with some questions and some thoughts. What I don't want, what I prayed for, is for you not to hear me in a wrong way. 
I am not saying we must not, we must just hear, do more. But let me suggest some things. Some of us may need to do more. Maybe Amos's hard-hitting words are a wake-up call. We've been pushing the snooze button, snooze button. And Amos is an alarm clock. A friend of mine that I respect greatly said, the cult of the comfortable is the curse of the Christian. Some of us may just be too comfortable. It's a question I ask myself. Some of us maybe just need to keep being encouraged to keep keeping on. We're engaged in an area of injustice and bringing human flourishing to our world, to our city, and we're just worn out because the sea of human need is overwhelming. And if you're involved with injustice, you know it is overwhelming. You get discouraged. So keep on keeping on. Maybe that's the message. Don't give up. Third, some of us may need to get a clear picture of how we can collaborate as a church family. This next year, our budget as a whole, around a half a million dollars is devoted to extension ministry at Christ Community. There are many opportunities on our website. Pastor Jeanette usually attends here. Our extension ministry pastor. Find ways of collaboration. We're involved with many areas, city, nationally, and globally for your involvement. So one of my greatest fears, I have many joys about Christ's community. It's one of the most amazing times in our history in 25 years. But one of my greatest fears is that a teary-eyed God would at 25 years write an obituary over our church family of a young church that died before its time. Because when injustice dies, a nation dies. Justice is at the very heart of God. Is it at our heart? Amos chapter 5, I close with, hate evil, Love good. Establish justice in the gate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words. But Holy Spirit, give them a soft landing in our hearts, in my heart. Woo us to Christ. Let us capture his heart. Holy Spirit, guide each one of us a next step. Do not let anyone here leave the same as they came in. Don't let me leave the same way I came in. If you're here this morning and you've never embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the beginning. May you trust him as your Lord and Savior this morning. Amen. One of the joys we have as community of faith as we celebrate God bringing justice to the world through the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we gather around the Holy Communion table this morning, let us remember what Jesus has done for us and how he has brought justice and righteousness to the world. And then an overflow of the grace that we experience when we remember Christ's death until he comes around these tables is an encouragement for us to live differently this week. The Christ community, we practice open communion. That means you do not have to be a formal member of Christ's community to come. But it does mean you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you feel more comfortable sitting where you are this morning, feel free to do that. So when you come, there are four stations. As we respond to celebrate the Lord's table together, gather in groups of four or five or six, take the red, dip it in the cup. 
and partake. There are, again, four communion stations. The gluten-free communion station is available at the, up front at the right. And as we come, I'd like you to exit through the side aisles. It just helps us kind of flow as a family and return to your seat through the center aisle. This is what Jesus said. He took the bread and he blessed it and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All who are in Christ, please come and celebrate at his table. Please come. Let us come together Walking in the Spirit There's much to be done Remember that the gospel is to be proclaimed in word and in deed as we live this out for the glory of Christ this week. So wherever God has placed you, whatever station of life, he wants you to be his salt and light, to be his image bearer, to bring an integral faith to the world and to seek his glory and human flourishing. What a wonderful mission we have. What a joyful mission we are on together as a broader church family. And again, it's great to be with you today. Uh, I wish you all of God's best, and I hope, again, I'll get to see you soon and greet many of you at the door this morning. I'd like to dismiss you from the prophet Micah. You've heard this text this morning already, um, but I think it captures our dismissal. I'd like you to raise your hand if you're comfortable with that as I dismiss you to your various callings this week in service. The prophet Micah says this, simple but profound. May we wrap it around our hearts and minds and hands. This is what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Amen and shalom.